The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. positive he had gone now, but she couldn't shake the feeling something was bearing down on her, making its way closer to her and reaching out to claim her, as if the shadows themselves had cut a taste of her blood and hungered to drain her of every drop. Mm. That's Michelle Garza, one half of the writing duo known as the Sisters of Slaughter. Reading from their novel, Twin Lakes, Autumn Fires. We are in full October mode, people, which means the harvest is reaped. The days are getting shorter, and things are getting eerie. It's Halloween month in the real world, which means in the world of literature, it's time for gothic novels, horror novels, tales of terror. It's the month for Penny Dreadfuls and Stephen King. So buckle your seatbelts. Or maybe don't. Maybe you're better off free and unencumbered. So you can make your escape. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, wait, Gar, is that the best you can do? Don't we have a scary laugh in there? The script says scary laugh. Don't we have some Vincent Price kind of thing? Budget? For Halloween? For the Halloween episode? We ran out of money? You recorded yourself? Sounds like rehearsal. I'm... Oh. I'm sorry, I didn't realize it was rehearsal. Can you can you play the real thing now? Okay, let's try again from the top. So buckle your seatbelts. Or maybe don't. Maybe you're better off free and unencumbered. So you can make your escape. <laughs> My producer being, being tickled by a feather, apparently. Maniacal laugh. Nice job, Gar. It's the Halloween episode of Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. That was our theme song, Backwards, in case you couldn't tell. Did you hear the satanic lyrics? That wasn't planned. I swear. Great show today. We're going to be talking about the king. The king of contemporary horror books, Stephen King. And we have the perfect guest to join us, Michelle Garza, who is, along with her sister, Michelle Melissa, sorry, let me try that again. We have today Michelle Garza, one of the Sisters of Slaughter. Her 
sister in Slaughterhood, Melissa Layson, was unable to join us because she was under the weather. These two were young twins growing up in Arizona, scaring the hell out of themselves with books of Mr. King's, who was up there in Maine, of course, but his books are universal. They apply anywhere. And eventually, these girls started scaring the hell out of their loved ones, and they grew up and kept writing, and now they scare the hell out of readers all over the world. We're going to talk to Michelle about how they got their start, what they admire about Stephen King, and what they try to do with their books. And they're working on an exciting new project, a serialization called Silverwood Adore, which we'll talk to Michelle about as well. So, I have been sick, as sick as I've ever been, I think, except for the time a Chinese bureaucrat in Tibet took me to dinner and poisoned my food. Look it up. He was a notorious criminal. It happened to a lot of us. That was short-lived but intense. This has been longer, a whole week on my back, trying to eke out an episode on Karl Marx, but I'm feeling better now. Ready for Halloween. This is the best month. It's my favorite, and yet I don't like being scared. I don't really seek it out. I like October for its weather, its beautiful and haunting light, and the surge of energy I get in October. I know what you're thinking. Does it coincide with a full moon, this surge of energy? Do you feel a beastly surge of energy, Jack? Hmm, no comment. But I will say we're going to talk about werewolves with our sister of slaughter. And while I was sick, I did stop shaving for quite a while, which my younger son found fascinating. It would not surprise me if he had some nightmares about his father, the wolfman, during that week. Poor guy. So let's do this. I'm not going to begin to try to summarize all of Stephen King's works, and most of you probably know as much or more about him than I do. I will say that if you're like me, and you don't tend to read a lot of Stephen King, you should at least dip into a book or two to see what the rest of the world is reading. His characters are very good. His prose is compulsively readable. He is a consummate craftsman and wildly inventive. So check him out. And you should also read his book on writing. That book is one I've probably read four or five times. It's a great, great book. Part memoir, part writing tips, and part inspiration. It's not just for writers. It's for people who are living in the world. I really do love Stephen King. So here's what we'll do. We'll take a quick break. Then I'll give you 10 things worth knowing about Stephen King. And then we'll hear from Michelle Garza, one of the Sisters of Slaughter. And then... The episode will be over. You'll be all alone. And the nightmare will begin. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Stephen King was born in 1947 in the northern state of Maine, where he has lived most of his life. He started publishing short stories in 1967. His first novel, Carrie, was accepted for publication in 1973. The paperback deal for that novel enabled him to write full-time, and he has put that freedom to good use. In the 45 years since Carrie came out, he has published 58 novels and something like 200 short stories. His books and films are like household words. Carrie, Christine, Cujo, The Shining, It, Misery, The Stand, Pet Cemetery, Salem's Lot, The Green Mile, The Dark Tower, Apt Pupil, Stand By Me, The Shawshank Redemption, The Dead Zone, Under the Dome, Bag of Bones, The Tommyknockers, Mr. Mercedes, Firestarter, The Running Man. You've heard of these, right? Even if you don't read them, you know them. And of course, you know his name, sort of the ultimate in author branding, Stephen King. And if you've ever read even five pages, and come on, even if you're a literary snob, you need to read five pages just to see how he does it. If you've ever read even five pages, you'll recognize his style. Engaging, charismatic, earnest, generous, funny, creepy, twisted, fantastic, sincere, pop culture from the baby boomer's perspective. He's won numerous awards and the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. In 2015, he was awarded the National Medal of Arts from the United States National Medal of Arts Foundation. His books have sold more than 350 million copies. This is pretty rarefied atmosphere for an author. Agatha Christie is in there, J.K. Rowling, John Grisham, Tom Clancy. Not many authors get that kind of audience during their lifetime. It takes a special kind of person who can have success and still have enough ambition and to avoid all the problems of sophomore slumps and writer's block to just keep going. I think the key for Stephen King, and this is why I love him, even though I don't read a lot of his books, is that he loves fiction. He loves it. He and his family sit around the house, passing books around, taking turns reading aloud. How excellent is that? I read an essay of his once. I think he was asked to be the judge of a short story contest, Best American Short Stories, or one of those editions. And he was trying to find the outlets where these stories were published, literary stories. Sure, they're in The New Yorker. Everyone can find that, or The Atlantic. But what about Plowshares and Five Points and The Iowa Review and other journals like that? How do you even find them? Who buys them? So he was interested. He walked into a bookstore looking for these journals, and he wound up 
somehow he wound up on his hands and knees, crawling between two shelves, trying to get at the literature that he was supposed to judge. I can't remember the details of that exactly, but that's the impression I have. That's my recollection. And he's written beautifully in his book on writing about his love for literature. He writes about his auto accident and his addictions and anything like that. You just cannot put it down. His memoirs are first rate. And one of the things that's great about the memoirs are that he has this unquenchable spirit, this passion for stories, for storytelling, for hearing a good one, for telling a good one. And he loves fiction. He's a force for good in the world. We've had some anonymous patrons. It would not shock me if I learned that he were one of them. It's the sort of thing he'd be likely to do. Stephen, if you're listening, thank you. You're welcome to join the podcast as a guest anytime, or I'd be happy to send you one of our special History of Literature mugs. Just let me know. Okay, so here we go. 10 things about Stephen King that you might not have known. Number one, in 1999, he was hit by a van while he was walking alongside the road. It was a horrendous accident causing him all kinds of damage, which led to a very painful recovery period. Stephen had gone through substance abuse problems as a younger man, and I always worry. I always feel especially horrible for recovering addicts when they fall into some kind of misfortune because you worry that the pain medication either won't be available to them or it will lead them into a horrible downward spiral. Thankfully, He seems to have avoided that particular nightmare, but the nightmare of the accident was real. Broken bones, a collapsed lung, and lots of time needed to heal. But his spirit doesn't seem to have been broken. He bought the van that hit him for (laughs) $1,500 and announced, quote, yes, we've got the van, and I'm going to take a sledgehammer and beat it, end quote. Number two. The author R.L. Stein, who wrote the Goosebump series, we'll hear more about that with Michelle Garza. She was a big fan. R.L. Stein was a fan of Stephen King's. He says that King complained to him once, quote, you've taken every single amusement park ride plot and haven't left any for anyone else, end quote. But Stein, it turns out, was secretly taking his plots from Stephen King. He said that he's stolen the plot from Pet Cemetery about six times. <laughs> he also thought, that Misery was the best book ever written about writers and editors. If you'll recall, that is the book where the writer is taken captive by a serial killer who tortures him. I wonder if Stein's editor ever read this particular interview, and if so, what he or she thought of that comparison. Number three, Stephen King did not like the film version of The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. This is kind of a surprise many critics think that The Shining is the greatest horror film of all time, or at least one of them. King, though, objected. He said it's like a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine inside it. He also said that the characters are like insects. He said, the book is hot and the movie is cold. The book ends in fire and the movie in ice. In the book, there's an actual arc where you see this guy, Jack Torrance, trying to be good. And little by little, He moves over to this place where he's crazy. And as far as I was concerned, when I saw the movie, Jack was crazy from the first scene. I had to keep my mouth shut at the time. It was a screening, and Nicholson was there. 
But I'm thinking to myself, the minute he's on the screen, oh, I know this guy. I've seen him in five motorcycle movies where Jack Nicholson played the same part. And it's so misogynistic. I mean, Wendy Torrance is just presented as this sort of screaming dish rag. But that's just me. That's just the way I am. End quote. He was asked if it was possible that people could understand that the book was good, a masterpiece, and that the movie was a masterpiece in its own right, even if it's not a faithful translation of the book. King said, quote, No, I never saw it that way at all, and I never see any of the movies that way. The movies have never been a big deal to me. The movies are the movies. They just make them. If they're good, that's terrific. If they're not, they're not. But I see them as a lesser medium than fiction, than literature, and a more ephemeral medium. End quote. Number four. At one point, Stephen King threw the manuscript for Carrie, the book that launched him, threw the manuscript for Carrie in the trash. Luckily, his wife Tabitha, who is also a novelist, happily enough, pulled it out of the garbage, read it, and encouraged him to finish it. That was 350 million books ago. Number five. Stephen King has long been in a band with other writers called the Rock Bottom Remainders. I think people know about this. Stephen King, Amy Tan, Mitch Album, Dave Barry. These guys would get together and play classic rock songs. King owns a radio station, by the way. I think he owns three of them. That's actually, we should probably count that as a separate fact. So we're up to number six. People have heard about the Rock Bottom Remainders, but... Have they ever heard one of their songs? Here is Stephen King singing at the ALA convention in 2012. The song is Surfin' Bird. I don't mean to be cruel. Let me just say that this guy has sold 350 million books and can do whatever he wants. And this particular YouTube video has been viewed 979 times and has one comment, which says, quote, voice of an angel, end quote. I will let that stand. Let's take a quick break and come back with more of our look at Stephen King. show. Let's plow through our next four Stephen King facts, and then we'll get to The Sister of Slaughter. Number seven. He wrote seven books under the name Richard Bachman. This was because of a belief at the time that readers, or the publishing industry, wouldn't go for more than one book in the same year by the same author. He was writing faster than that, so he had to use a pen name. Another author, Evan Hunter, was doing that under the name Ed McBain. So King had this name all set, Gus Pillsbury, which is a really funny name. 
thing <laughs> to think of that King might have used. He didn't like it very much. So his publisher called him up and said, what should we use? Stephen King or Gus Pillsbury? And he looked at a novel on his desk, which was written by Richard Stark, which itself is a pen name for Donald Westlake. And on the record player was You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet by Bachman Turner Overdrive. So King said, okay, Richard from Richard Stark plus Bachman from BTO, let's go with that. It didn't work. Readers guessed it was King immediately because his style was unmistakable. Number eight. Let's run through some rumors on Stephen King's website. This is from his FAQs. Question. Is it true you've been in all of your films? No. He has only been in 14 or so of his films. Number nine. Mr. King, can I come to your house for Halloween? Answer, no, you can't, (laughs) because Stephen King doesn't host trick-or-treaters anymore. The last time he did, 1,400 people showed up in costumes. He said he had a great time, but it sounds like the police asked him to stop. That reminds me of a Halloween story from when I was younger, back in my Wisconsin days. State Street in Madison was a big Halloween venue. Thousands of college students dressed up in costumes, wandering around, having a party. I went one year and a guy was dressed up as a dorm mattress. He literally had taken his mattress, climbed inside, and could kind of walk with his feet at the bottom and his head sticking out of the top and his hands on either side. He got a lot of high fives, if you can call them high fives, medium fives, I guess, as people walked by and slapped his hands. He couldn't really move his arms or his legs. He just had his feet and his hands sticking out. So they slapped his hands like you might high five a seal. He was sort of the hero of the night, until a couple came along. They knocked him down, jumped on top of him, and started making out. You might think he would have stayed in character (laughs) as the dorm mattress, but no. He dropped roll immediately. He started shouting, help me, help me. But nobody did. A lot of people stood and watched, laughed hysterically, but nobody helped. Yeah. Oh, there we, there we go. <laughs> Thank you, Gar. I knew that would come in handy. <laughs> Actually, I didn't know that at all. Way to come through. Back to Stephen King and our final question. Number 10. Are you dead? That's an actual question. One of the most frequently asked questions posed to Stephen King. Answer. And I think this is a perfect answer. His answer is, Nope. (laughs) That's how you know it's a true statement. Nope. If he were a ghost trying to fool you, he would have answered no. Or, no, I'm not dead. Why would you think that? I'm not dead. But a real person, a person who is still alive, would say, nope. Stephen King, ladies and gentlemen, now let's hear from one of his biggest fans, one of the Sisters of Slaughter, who became a horror writer in her own right, R-I-G-H-T, or who knows. Maybe you could spell it either way, come to think of it. That's why homonyms are fun on the radio. I don't have to pick. You can do some of the work here. Listeners, listen with your mind open. We have Michelle Garza here today. Her sister Melissa, as I mentioned, was unfortunately ill and couldn't make it. But Michelle's here to talk about the Sisters of Slaughter, how they got their start, their love for Stephen King, 
and their passion for werewolves after this. Okay, joining me now. <laughs> oh, this is a fun one. Joining me now is Michelle Garza, who, along with Melissa Layson, is part of the writing duo known as the Sisters of Slaughter. They've made a buzz in the horror world for their books, including Mayan Blue and Kingdom of Teeth, which take readers on a gory thrill ride through historical hellscapes and demented fairy tales. They're also part of a new project called Silverwood, The Door, which is a collaborative project that delivers serialized fiction in a throwback to the era of Dickens and Little Nell, which we'll talk about with Michelle. And she's also here to talk about Stephen King, The X-Files, and her passion for werewolves. Michelle Garza, a sister of slaughter. Welcome to the History (laughs) of Literature. Thank you so much for having me on. (laughs) Sure. So that was a long introduction, but I think it was worth it. Uh, so yes. I wanted to be upfront about horror fiction and literature. For me, mm-hmm. it's kind of the same category as scary movies like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, where I used to go to watch these when I was a teenager, where I'd rent them and I'd watch them at home. And then one day I realized if I'm not scared, there's no point to these movies. But if I am scared, the movie's good, but I don't really like being scared. So for me, it was lose-lose. <laughs> so I'm not a huge fan, but... I do realize it's very human to feel scared. And of course, there are millions of people out there who love reading these books, including both of my kids. So I wanted to start with you and how you first got interested. I'm guessing that you were a reader of these books before you started being a writer of them. Um, Yeah, I actually started liking horror and scary things from a very young age, from when I was a little kid. I mean, I can't even really explain it beyond, you know, some kids get into liking pirates, some kids get into liking astronauts. But for me and my sister, we liked everything to do with Halloween and Mm. Scooby-Doo and monsters. Actually, you know, Scooby-Doo probably had a big... (laughs) yeah. Big yeah. part to play in the, you know, um, <laughs> that was we, the we uh, in Arizona. That was the gateway drug. Mm-hmm. That was the gateway drug. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you learned the important lesson that most monsters were just humans in disguise. You know, under yeah. underneath it all, it was just the bad guys. So, uh, but yeah, we we grew up in Arizona. We still live here in in Hades. And really, the end of summer, the beginning of fall, and, you know, the coming of Halloween is like a magical time in the desert. You know, mm. the kids could get out again and play, and our our mom would make us homemade costumes and candies. And, it, you know, it was just like a whole, the whole package, the fun time of the year, the scary stories, everything. Yeah. We just loved it from a very young age. So. Yeah. From there, we went to, uh, you know, when we got old enough to read, we had our brother reading to us first the uh, Goosebump books, which oh, I know is yep. making a big time come back again, you know? Yeah. So, and, you know, then from there, when we were big enough to read on our own, we continued reading Goosebumps, and we read the scary stories to tell in the dark, and then, you know, classics like Dracula and Frankenstein, and then when we got to junior high, 
basically in our library, your mom had to sign a note saying you were allowed to check out the Stephen King books. Yeah. So, you know, being 13, 14, you know, seeing this magical section of the library where you had to have permission <laughs> to go. <laughs> right. We wanted to read it. You know what I mean? We wanted to read it. So that's what we did. And our mom and our dad, you know, basically more our mom, like our dad would tell us scary stories when we were camping. And that really got us, you know, hooked on the feeling of being storytellers, how magical it was and everything. Oh, yeah. But our our mom was big time into old horror, like the Universal horror uh, movies mm. and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all those kind of things. Yeah. So, of course, she didn't mind us reading Stephen King. And on top of it, by the time we got into junior high and started reading his books, we had actually seen a lot of the adaptations on movies. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Like we've seen Pet Cemetery, and we've seen all of those before yeah. we read them, you know? So there were big differences in the books and everything, but it wasn't like our mom was like, no way, you can't read Stephen King, because he'd already let us watch the movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, so, right. You know, getting into horror, I don't know. Like I said, it was just it was just a thing that stuck to us the whole magical time of the year, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah. mixing also on top of that, like being really interested in like mythology and stuff, because all those basically are monsters, you know, all the right. mythological beasts and everything. And, you know, mixing it with fairy tales. A lot of those fairy tales back in the day were scary, you know? Yeah especially back in those times, you know what I mean? So we just loved it, loved using our imagination and all that stuff. So that's pretty much how we got into the whole horror thing. Yeah, you know, I guess that's a that's a good distinction to draw because part of me sort of associates uh, horror fiction or movies with the sort of uh, you're alone in a house and, and there's a mm -hmm. knock at the door, you know, someone's walking slowly yeah. through a house and then all of a sudden something uh -huh. jumps out from the shadows. But <laughs> yeah, actually, when I look at your books, the the mythology or the history really comes out and it. it's about transformation and humans yeah. taking mm -hmm. different forms or uh, creatures. Yeah. And, you know, it, it gives it a whole different element than just the... Uh, the, the startling aspects of, you know, a dark yeah. and stormy night and there's a, a, yeah. some, a stranger in the house or something. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much like whenever we sit down to write, it's like we love horror, but we also love fantasy and, and stuff like that. So we try to mix and blend the genres together, you know, to try to make it something interesting. And because you got to be interested in what you're writing before you can even finish it and hope readers are interested in reading it, you know? What do you think makes Stephen King so good? What stands out for you? I think just his writing style in mm. general as a writer, I'm drawn to it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can tell he knows what he's doing as far as telling a story, getting you wound up in it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Drawing you in, leaving those little bread breadcrumbs along the way and, you know, really builds the tension and stuff. I mean, he's good at scaring you with like gory stuff too, but he, he's more than that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when I was like, I think like 18, 19, I really got into the dark tower mm. because mm -hmm. that was like a blend of, you know, not just horror, you know, it was 
it was taking you to other worlds. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it kind of showed me that, like, you don't have to only be, like, a guy's driving down the street and, you know, he accidentally gets a flat tire and then a werewolf attacks him and he's dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right, right. there's got to be more to it to keep it fresh. Yeah. I think that's what it is. It's like, you got to keep it fresh. You got to incorporate other things, hide other things in it. Yeah. It goes beyond what people think horror is. I've read so many um, sort of, I'm going to call them literary snobs, but, you know, they're they're English professors or they're, they're mm-hmm. critics and they're used to reading literary fiction and they pick up a, a Stephen King book or they talk about one of his stories and they say how surprised they are at how much they cared about the characters. You know, yeah, that, that uh-huh. it's, and of course, people oh, fans yeah. of Stephen King know that that that's that that's not a surprise. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think people right. are expecting to just see a lot of spattering blood and and you right. know all the things mm-hmm. that you might get if you just know him from the trailers to his movies or something. But right. instead, they you know, and and the thing that always strikes me is just how compelling the prose is you just can't stop reading it it's so right charismatic yeah. and um it yeah. just pulls you right in and, and he's such a born mm-hmm. storyteller that even right and like you said about his characters and stuff it's like wow dude you really get invested in some of those yeah <laughs> and then <laughs> the things that happen to him you're just like heartbroken like no but yeah that's what makes a good writer though One of the things that I can't really, I don't read enough in the genre to really analyze is, is the horror aspects of Stephen King. Is he sort of one of the more disturbing uh, writers or is he gorier than others or is he, uh, where would you put him on the scale? No, I wouldn't say he's gorier. I think, you know, and I wouldn't say he's like midline or anything. I think he's above midline, but I, I definitely wouldn't call him like the goriest. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes too, just wordplay. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, with Jack Ketchum, I love him. There's certain things that like they can imply in your mind, like mm. the worst thing, but they don't <laughs> necessarily tell you in graphic detail. And that's what I like too. It's it's almost like they feed you this thing in your imagination and then you make your own monster out of it or you make your own conclusion, whatever. Like you said about storytelling, sometimes that's what the audience needs. They don't need to hear like, oh, and he cut her guts open and ate them for yeah. dinner. You know, it's like yeah. kind of imply it. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes that's scarier or it leaves a deeper scar on someone to let their own imagination envision it instead of it just being told word for word what happened. Yeah, that seems like a a really important point, because one of the things that I would guess would happen if that weren't the case is there would just be this sort of escalation of the gore. And so you'd be looking for books to just keep getting gorier and gorier. But if what you're talking about is you're trying to take the reader on a journey and and take them on a sort of, you know, with highs and lows and have them come. Uh, Mm -hmm. care about the characters and if those are your goals and make it interesting and intellectually Mm -hmm. engaging on some level then it's it's not a genre that's going to reach a sort of peak but it's something Mm -hmm. that would always be fresh for the reader right so 
I can remember this girl at my high school who would come to school just exhausted. She'd been up all night reading, just terrifying herself with Stephen King. And I would say, Jody, why don't you just stop reading those? And she would just shake her head sadly and say, I just can't. I can't stop. Even though right. she she kind of <laughs> didn't like the, the feeling, but she mm-hmm. just she was also so drawn to it. Was your experience... You know, did you feel addicted to the adrenaline of it like that? Yeah. 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 I think there is a rush to it. You know what I mean? Of being scared and, quote, surviving it or, you know, or whatever. But it's also with some some writers, like we were saying, you get so invested in the characters, you just have to see what happens to them. Yeah. Good or bad, you have to find out. Or, you know, whatever the villain is, you have to see if they're going to be destroyed or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes there's an opening for them to return in a way. But you have to you have to see it to the end. You have to see how it ends. So Right. I think that's what it is for me. Like I've always loved horror. I've always loved the scare factor, witnessing something or just feeling that rush, that adrenaline, but at the same time, like I said with some books, it's just like I have to see what happens. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I get yeah. invested in these characters or these towns or these whole groups of people, and I say, I want to know what happened. Right. So here we are. We're talking about this. Uh, we're talking about this genre that often just gets sort of dismissed. And here we're talking about what makes it, what makes the books good: our character, plot, uh, good prose, psychological mm-hmm. depth. You know, all the things that you would yeah. expect out of uh, any kind of fiction to be good. Right. Yeah, exactly. Horror can be so many, so many things. It's, you know, not just a hairy monster with big teeth. Sometimes it is just that emotional trauma that's inflicted on people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think a good storyteller will, will drag the reader in and whether the monster is a real monster or just a, a man next door, we want to see if he gets vanquished, you know? Right, right. So one of the things, speaking of monsters and the man next door, so one of the things that you had mentioned as being a particular interest is werewolves. So why werewolves and not uh, vampires or mummies or any of the others? What about werewolves appealed to you? Um. I think it's the same with my sister, you know, when we were little kids watching, you know, the original Wolfman at first, he was scary, but at the same time, you just really felt for the guy. He was human. Because he was human. I think that's the thing about werewolves is they still have a human side. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Most of the other monsters, you don't really see their human side that maybe struggles with the fact that they killed somebody or they're afraid of what's going to happen when they change. Yeah. Stuff like that. You know, and of course, being a horror freak, watching the metamorphosis in the the, the first Howling and American Werewolf in London, to me, watching those were just, wow, they blew my mind. Yeah. But at the same time, like I said, a lot of werewolves, you have like this feeling for them because they do still have that human side. And I mean, there are, you know, some cases of bad werewolves in movies. You know, like I said, the howling, <clears throat> when they go to the retreat, all those dudes there, you know, they don't really feel bad about what they do. They're just like, oh, I'm going to turn into a werewolf and I'm going to kill you, you know? Yeah. But then there's the Wallace at the end and 
her face when she's becoming like this pretty werewolf and she's crying a tear and you just go, Oh my gosh, <laughs> she didn't want this. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's forced upon her. Yeah. You know? So I don't know. I've always, always, always loved werewolves ever since I was a little kid. We had cats and I would dress them up in doll clothes and pretend like they were werewolves attacking <laughs> Barbie dolls and stuff, you know? So you know, I had, so. I had it. Oh, go mm-hmm. ahead. I was going to say, and it's the the wild aspect of the werewolf. You know, they get to go out and go deep into the woods and shed their clothes and run around and, you yeah. know, unleash that, you know, the animal side. So that's kind of cool, too. I was I thinking of like that, that, too. That, like, you know, and wolves themselves are a little uh, creepy to me. We look at dogs and, yeah. and if you're used to having a dog around and then you look at a wolf and you know the difference between, you right. know, this this domesticated animal that's bounding around and wants to be man's right. best friend. And, <laughs> and I think there's part of us that thinks, you know, it looks at a dog and thinks, if I were you... I'd go rogue. Right. I'd I'd want to exactly. be a wolf, you know. I'd want to hunt wanna in a be pack, a wolf. and yeah, I'd, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to <laughs> take any shit from humans, you know. I'd right, be, exactly. I'd go wolf to explore that side. Yeah, and there's like, um, like I remember watching uh, in the company of wolves when I was mm. younger with Angela Lansbury, and mm-hmm. and there was a side, you know, the wolf he walked. Wants the little red riding wood, uh, red riding uh, hood girl. You know, he wants to take her in the woods and all that stuff. And he's scary and he's dangerous. And then when he's transforming in front of the fire, you almost see, you almost feel kind of sorry for him a little bit. But then at the same time, you're like, oh wait a minute, this is scary. You know? Yeah. And that was very fairy tale esque. You know, obviously being off of uh, Little Red Riding Hood and everything, but. That just that was just like the perfect blend of like a like a fairy tale scary movie werewolf thing for me when I was young. You know, I still love it, but I was just like, wow, this yeah. is a fantastic movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, and do I you, don't know. The werewolf thing started very young for me and my sister. Do you think? I mean, I also sort of associate vampires with. I know more recently there's there's sort of the Twilight books and everything, but. I always think of vampires as being old European castles and and, <laughs> yeah. and mummies uh-huh. are kind of Egyptian pyramids that are are dug up and but werewolves right. seem like I'm wondering if being in Arizona had something to do with your affinity for werewolves if it yeah. was like something you you might picture outside your back door. I I yeah, I think so, you know, in the tales of the skinwalkers and everything mm. and Definitely with the vampire thing. I don't know why. You know, when I was younger, you know, I liked, uh, like, Lost Boys and stuff like that. Yeah. But for, for me, the ultimate monster was always a werewolf. The werewolf. <laughs> I, I don't know. To me, I know, it's, you know, there's going to be people who are going to hate me for saying this. I think vampires seem a little stuck up. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're kind <laughs> I think of werewolves, there. like... They're kind you know, of they might be the dude that, like, you know, rides down the street on his bicycle and offers you a beer or whatever, and then you don't realize that, the, you know, a couple nights later he's running off in the forest naked to turn into a werewolf. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> right. They'd wear jeans. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's a normal dude, you know, just like, what's up? <laughs> At some point... You took the leap from reading and watching these movies to writing yourself. So 
Tell me about uh, your earliest writing efforts. Okay. Me and my sister started out writing when we were really young, like eight, nine, ten, just for fun. You know, Uh, we would write scary stories and illustrate them. And I think we were kind of trying to mimic like Goosebump books at that time. Right. Right. Um, but we kind of just did it for fun because we live in like a rural part of Arizona and literally the street we grew up on, it wasn't even paved until we were like 19. Wow. So we lived out on two and a half acres of desert. Yeah. We couldn't skateboard or anything. There was no street. <laughs> there was no concrete. So, you know, when we started reading and finding out like, oh, wow, this is really cool to tell stories. Then we just started writing our own stories and drawing little pictures. And I remember when we were like nine, eight or nine, we wrote a story and it was about a werewolf and a ghost on the moors of England. <laughs> right. That was your first one. And or, or an early that one. That was our first one. Yeah. 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 And uh, <laughs> we were so proud of it. I don't know if my mom still has that or not, but it was, it's pretty funny to think back on it though. Cause it had a werewolf and a ghost in the same story. And it was like, wow, we thought we were like doing some cool so, stuff, you know? <laughs> so were the, uh, were the two of you trying to scare each other? Or do you, or were you kind of yeah. teamed up trying to scare the rest of the world? I think we were just teamed up trying to scare the rest of the world, yeah. like trying to scare our mom and stuff. Our yeah. dad, he yeah. built us a little, uh, he built us a little playhouse in the backyard, and he actually like hooked it up where he could run like an electrical cord from the back porch like into it with like little lights and. Our mom would bring us hot chocolate or something, and it, that's weird. I know in Arizona, like it would only rain like two times a year, so yeah. <laughs> she would bring us some tea or something, and we would read her, our scary stories in our little playhouse, and it was just a lot of fun. It was just an extension of our imagination, you know, just yeah. playing pretend, and we just never stopped doing it. You it's never funny. stopped. That like, was going to be we my next teenagers. question. Yeah. So. You didn't, yeah. I was wondering if you maybe took a break and then came back to it as adults, but you just kept going. It was just something the two of you always. Yeah, uh, we just, we just always did it. We kept notebooks, had a lot of handwritten stuff that we would read. And when we were teenagers, we'd hang out with our one friend at her house. And she thought it was kind of weird at first that we liked to write, but then we got her into writing stories. So we would all like sit around and try to write the scariest short stories and freak each other out and stuff. Yeah. And yeah, it just kept, it kept just hanging on, you know, and we were almost 30. We're like 29. We're going to be 36 this year. But when we were 29, we're like, you know, we should really try to get published. Mm. So Mm -hmm. from there is when we try to start like really writing for people. Yeah. And uh, it took a little while. I would say the first like year or two is like really just rejection. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you live and you learn, you know, and that's what I'd like to tell writers, you know, no matter what genre you're writing in, just keep going because you're going to get rejected. Don't be afraid of it. Just keep going. As long as you're learning from your experience and learning from what you've done wrong or whatever and try to correct it, you'll be okay. And just keep doing it. So how, how does the collaborative process work? Do you write uh, you take this chapter and I'll take the next chapter, or do you have strengths and weaknesses that you one of you does the plotting and the other one then writes the prose, or how do you divide up the labor? 
Yeah, we basically, we we keep notebooks, just story ideas and stuff. Mm-hmm. And whether it's a short story anthology we want to submit to, or if it's like a straight up novel we want to write, we just decide on what project we want to do. And we always outline. I know a lot of people don't work on outlines, but yeah. for me and her, it worked for us because there's two of us. And we right. both have kids and we try to get together a couple times a week and read you know, each chapter that we've written and make sure it jives, you know, but yeah. we always have an outline, especially to the longer stuff. Now, if we're writing a short story, that's only like 3000 words, we can do the thing. We're like, okay, this is what it's going to be about. I'm going to write this and then I'm going to hand it off to you and you finish it and then I'll edit it, you know, and send yeah. it off. Yeah. But with it like an outline or I mean like a novel or a novella, we have to have an outline. And, you know, it's not really strict, strict, but it's like from point A to point B, it has our little, our little beats in between of all the important things we want to happen. How we get there sometimes isn't like rigid, you know what I mean? Like if we want this set of characters in the forest, but we want these two to die somehow, you know, there's a little bit of leeway there to use our imaginations if we're not together. Yeah. But it's the outline thing, you know, and we've always done it, too. We've always worked together, so we don't really argue about stuff. I've never worked with, like, strangers yeah. besides now. We we worked on this, the, the Silverwood thing, yeah. which was great. That so was like, let's talk about that. So exactly yes. what's the project and what was your role? Okay, Silverwood the Door is a serialized, fiction put out through Serial Box, which is basically like the HBO of literature mm-hmm. or like, say, like Netflix. You go and you look at what serials they have available and you can subscribe to them. Like if you want to subscribe to the entire season of Silverwood, it's thirteen ninety nine, I think. Mm-hmm. But you can also just try episodes like if you want to just try like the first episode for a dollar 99 to see if you want to continue with it and they have a bunch of other serials on there too not i think we were the first horror one but they have like fantasy and like a bunch of different stuff really cool really cool idea and when you buy an episode or when you subscribe it's like weekly the episodes come out and you can either read it like an ebook, or you can also listen to it through an audio. Mm, mm-hmm. So it gives you a lot of uh, freedom there. Say if I started reading it at home and then I had to ride the bus to work, I could switch over to the audio and continue listening to it. Serial Box is really, really awesome. I think they're like doing great things for for readers and for writers. Yeah. Um, but, but anyways, we got in the project. We wrote our first novel Mind Blue and Brian Keene read it and he really liked it. And we became friends, which was awesome because we idolized Brian. We've always read all of his books. I remember sitting at work at night reading his books and just going, Oh, this is the coolest, you know? Mm, yeah. So years later, flash forward years later, we finally released our first novel. He likes it. We become buddies yeah. uh, in Facebook and stuff. And he was talking about projects one day of, you know, he might have some, some group, some teamwork stuff going on. And I just kind of commented, like throwing our hat in the ring, (laughs) you know, I never in a million years thought that they would choose us. So then, uh, you know, a couple of months later we heard back and they're like, yeah, are you interested? He was talking about 
Silverwood, and we'd seen a little bit of it on the Black Box TV on YouTube, and it was it's so cool. Uh, it reminded me of watching Tales from the Crypt or Tales from the Dark Side. They're all horror stories short horror films, you know what I mean? Just a couple minutes, 10 minutes. And like, uh, each one told their own story, but like, they're so awesome. They all happened in the same place in Silverwood. Mm. Okay. So anyway, okay. Yeah. Um, Brian, he asked us, you know, if we would be interested in writing for it. And we we're like, yeah, a hundred percent. So that's how we got on board. And then, um, Brian and Richard and Steven and Lydia and Tony, they all came to Arizona and we met them at an Airbnb for three days. And Brian was a showrunner. He wrote the series Bible and everything off of what Tony Valenzuela, that was his series on YouTube. So he, Brian wrote the series Bible. We basically sat down and said, these are the episodes and these are the, the beats we want in between, you know, to keep people entertained. So we all worked out in the first, like, two days of what every episode was going to be about, right. which worked great for me and Melissa because we we're total outline freaks. Yeah. So we're like, yes, this is awesome. So this it is a group of, like, five or six writers who got together to do sort of a big outline for the serialized project? Yes. What it was, okay, it was me, Melissa, Brian, Richard, and Stephen. We were all five of the writers. And then Lydia, she was uh, producing, and Tony, he was the one, you know, it was his his property, you know, mm. so he was there to help us, too. But, yeah, we all sat down, and within the first two days, we knocked it all out, and then we decided who would write each episode. And me and Melissa got three episodes that we would write together. So, yeah, it was really, really awesome. And from what Brian and Richard said, it was like really, a really good team. I've never worked like that before. You yeah. know, like I said, I've only worked with my sister. So I've never sat in like a big room with like other writers or anything. But they said they're like, oh, this is like a dream team compared to what other people go through. So I feel really lucky that that was our first experience in doing yeah. this type of thing, you know. Yeah. Well, it also seems like, you know, a lot of times writers will complain that it's kind of a lonely business writing and they sort of look longingly at television or movies and think, oh, you get to be part of a team and you can bounce ideas uh -huh. off of people and you can have that sort of, you know, the benefits of collaboration. It's it's something writers often don't get to, to have in any yeah. sense until it's time to right. send something off to their editor and doubt creeps in. And, you know, oh, you yeah. always hear about these cases of authors who throw their manuscript away and someone else has to fish <laughs> it out of the waste can. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it seems like it would be really fun if it's working well. Right. Right. And if it wasn't working well, it might be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, right. So I just want to make sure it's clear to people listening. I know you mentioned um, YouTube and, and video a little bit, but these are you're writing prose chapters, right? Or, or episodes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then when people yes. subscribe, what they're getting is something that they read. It's not a, a, a video. Yes. No, if they want to check out like Silverwood on YouTube through Black Box TV, they'll get a, a glimpse of like what happened previously in Silverwood. Oh, uh -huh. But what we wrote was all prose. Yeah. You can either read it or listen to the audio version of it. 
and it all takes place in Silverwood, but we kind you know, we kind of went off. We have like a couple characters that came from the original series, but we kind we just made our own our own uh, story out of it, yeah. which is really it's a really awesome story. We had a lot of fun. Now, when people, um, I know it's been compared with Dickens and Little Nell, and one of the sort of uh, the old days when things were serialized, readers would wait and and the anticipation would build. It, is it is there a component of that to it, or is it like Netflix is now, where they just release a whole season and and you can binge read it if you want? Well, basically, right now, I think it's only up to episode five. So. Mm. Before, yeah. so it has been just been releasing week by week an episode. Yeah. So I mean, it's going to be either or. You could be the person that subscribes to a serial and waits weekly for the next installment, or you could go, you know, after it's already started and subscribe, and then go back and binge like the last five. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. So it it kind of gives you the option of both. I kind of like the idea that fiction would have something where it's anticipatory because the internet would, you know, it makes it so easy to have that kind of audience that's discussing things. It's hard when you're trying to talk about a book and you have to have spoiler alerts all the time and you're either, you know, you're never at the same exact place as a group of people. You're always either you haven't read it or you're in the middle or you've finished it. Uh But, you know, I like the idea that that there'd be a group of people who are reading it at the same time and waiting and and they have time to talk about what they think is going to happen or what they hope or they're afraid is going to happen. And have you seen that? Are you are there communities like that that are following it? Yeah, I've I've seen, um, we've had some people on Twitter following along weekly as each one is being released and commenting on each, um, each episode. And I I was like, wow, this is really cool. You know, because I never thought about that until it was starting to be released. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, there is going to be a sort of anticipation, kind of an excitement, you know what I mean? For someone that starts at the beginning and says, okay, I've read episode one. Now I have to wait till next Wednesday till episode two comes out. And I was really starting to see that. And I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. We also did something cool for, for cereal box that was released. I think it was last week. It was called exquisite corpse where 10 writers, we got together and, you know, the exquisite corpse where we basically passed the story to one another and just built off it and built off it and went to all in our own direction. And then the next person had to pull it back and go their own direction. And mm. they released it hourly and that was free. Oh, wow. And it was, that was cool <laughs> because we had people following along with that too. And they were commenting on each one and it was, that was really awesome. So, I'm just super excited about Serial Box and what they're doing. You know, the whole idea of serials, I would just, I would totally continue writing in this fashion. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just found it really, really fun. It seems like it's a great way to kind of invite the reader into the process, too, that their their imagination is, is clicking along with you as they try to mm-hmm. figure out the twists and turns in a way that, doesn't seem quite the same when you're just reading something that's between two covers and has, you know, you know, other people have already read right. it and um, it's already yeah. fixed in place. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. 
Well, this seems like a good place to talk about the other thing that you mentioned, which is the X-Files. Because uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, for someone who's new to the X-Files, would you suggest they just start in at season one, episode one, and just kind of trace the whole history of the series that way? I would, honestly. I've watched the series. I I can't even count how many times. Me and my husband, we just had a a watch. We watched the whole thing like last year again. I would start at season one, episode one, and just go from there. Yeah. Like, talk about binge watching. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We would watch like six hours of files in a day. Yeah. It seems kind of similar. I mean, to some of the things we've been talking about, it's got that that serialized aspect, but it also has the characters that people love. Yeah. All their crazy adventures, man. I I love it. You know, and the, there are some episodes that link together and have like a whole history and a backstory behind it. And then there's the standalone episodes that still just knock you on your butt. And yeah, yeah. it's one of my all time favorite shows, The X-Files. I actually watched it, you know, when I was younger, when it first came out, you know, and then when me and my husband got married or we were dating, he's like, so you, you like The X-Files? I'm like, ha. Huh. Do I like the X Files? <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. I think in the last, you know, we've been together like ten years. I think in the last ten years, I think we watched all the episodes at least every year or every other year. We have to go and watch every single episode again. Wow. So how are they holding up? Um, you know, there's little things, and um, you know what I mean. You might laugh at the size of a cell phone yeah, or whatever, but. Yeah. But I think they held up well, man. Okay. I might be biased, though, because I freaking love them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you might be forgiving. I might be a little forgiving. Yeah. If you're like me, that's one of the things where when I watch it with my kids is when I really see it with a fresh pair mm-hmm. of eyes. Because, you right. know, if there's special effects that they roll their eyes at or something, and I think, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I can see the that this one is getting yeah. a little old here or the... If the <laughs> It, or if the pace is slow of anything, I mean, they're uh-huh. yeah. everything moves so quickly, and and comedies, you know, there's so many jokes packed into a, a sitcom right. now or a, a comedy show. Yeah. That, you know, I watch some beloved old movie or something, and I think, oh, they're gonna laugh their heads off, and instead they're sort of waiting and waiting. And... Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, what's next for the Sisters of Slaughter? And I'm wondering, have you? You, have you written a werewolf book yet? Is that something that uh, is on the horizon? See, that's something we've been talking about a lot. And mm-hmm. we are planning and plotting a werewolf, straight up werewolf book. Yeah. In our, our most recent book that was just released, Twin Lakes, the Autumn, Fire, uh, Autumn Fires, they have, we do have a character that is a werewolf. But we would like to write straight up a book that's just about werewolves. Yeah. Recently, you know, if you read like Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones, I like Blood and Rain by Glenn Rolfe. There's been quite a few that have been released that are really good werewolf books because we're trying not to tread on the, and I don't want to put anybody down for it, the romantic shifter kind of stuff. Oh, uh uh-huh. We wanted, you know, we wanted to be like kind of fairy tale like and straight up a little brutal. You know what I mean? Mm. I don't know. We're still talking about it, but yes, that is something we want to do: is straight up do a werewolf book. People have been asking me that for a while because on Facebook, I haven't done it in a little <laughs> while, but 
for years, I did Werewolf Wednesday. Every Wednesday, I posted a picture of like my favorite, you know, werewolf movies and everything from the werewolf and Monster Squad all the way to the Howling, and you know, yeah. But yes, werewolves. We will get around to a werewolf novel. We will, but we want to make it special because of how much we love werewolves. We do not want it to be just the cliches, right? I have a surprise bonus question for you. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. You are camping in a remote area in the Arizona desert. It is dark. Uh The moon is fall. And your fire is almost out for the night. You decide Uh to retire to your tent for a night of peaceful slumber. Suddenly, Mm -hmm. you hear a scrabbling noise and a low moan. It is a man... Uh who has crawled his way to you. His clothes are in shreds, and he has deep scratches grooved into his back. He says, Oh, no. There's there's a creature out there. He's part man, part beast, a wolf man. Your ride will not be available until morning. Do you stay in the tent, waiting and wondering if the wolf man is real, and perhaps waiting for him to attack? Or Mm -hmm. do you venture forth, searching for this mythical creature, even if it increases your exposure to danger? Ooh, that is a good question. (laughs) Um, mm, I want to say I would be brave. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I don't know if I would stay in the tent, but I don't think I'd necessarily go looking for him. I think I'd be like, what if I climb a tree? Can a wolf man climb a tree? You let know what me, I mean? Let me ask you this. Is what you would do the same as what you would have your character do if you were writing this as a as a book? No, it would yeah. depend on the character, you right. know. Right. There's you know, you just gotta go with like personalities, you know, who you know, you build these people up in your mind, they're different right. than you. So, I mean, I'm sure I would have a character that'd be like, oh, bullshit, there's no such thing as a werewolf, and then, I'll like, prove walk you wrong. out in the yeah. forest. Yeah. I'll prove you wrong, <laughs> even though you're bloody and <laughs> torn up and everything, you know? What I kind of so, like is the idea that someone would know they were going to be facing more danger, but would be so in love with werewolf myths that they couldn't stop themselves from... Right. You know, like, they would oh, just have to I, see it. Yeah. If I stayed right. in the tent and it never came, I might regret it all my life that I never, like, you right. know, had missed a chance to yeah. get close to the creature. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I personally, I think I would be somewhere in between. Like I said, like, I'd be too scared to sit in the tent, like, sack lunch, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I'd be like, oh, man, if I seen it, I would probably pee my pants and have a heart attack. So, yeah. I don't know. Sack lunch. Uh, I it definitely is, <laughs> wouldn't stay in the tent, though. It is, it is one of those things when you go camping, <laughs> and the tent it, it's got such a nice cozy feel to it. And then if if you hear a noise or something, and you realize oh, yeah. like this tent is nothing, you know, like exactly, like, like, this is so thin. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> this isn't going to stop anything. This um, ain't stopping nothing. Okay, so I wanted to ask, uh, let's see, I have a couple more questions. One is, I just wanted to ask if you had a recommendation, if someone is new to Stephen King, if there was a particular book you'd recommend or a top three or something of where someone should start. 
I know my favorites are Pet Cemetery, Cycle mm. of the Werewolf, and I would, depending on how adventurous genre genre wise they want to go, I would try the first Dark Tower. Yeah, you know. Yeah, some go people. For it. Yeah, some people that that's their favorite Stephen King. It's it's uh-huh. it's pretty different from the others, I think. Yes, it is. Um, I think it you know it it would just give like a broad sweep yep. of you know try this and try that and. And see what you enjoy. You know, the cycle of the werewolf, I love it, but it's very short, you know. So yeah. if anybody just wanted to dip their toes into Stephen King, then that would be a good start. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Last question. How do the Sisters of Slaughter plan to spend Halloween this year? Okay. The Sisters of Slaughter are going to definitely be chasing around our little monsters <laughs> all over the neighborhood while they solicit candy from people. That's right. definitely what's going to happen. Yes. Um, they... My oldest son, he wants to be like a, like a guy from The Purge. Uh, uh, my youngest, he wants to be a SWAT team cop. Oh, so right. I just need to get him some aviator glasses, though, because I want him to look rad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I want him to look like a maybe one of the characters from like a post, you know, zombie attack type of thing, like a badass survivor type dude. You yep. know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'll, I'll I don't know if I'll wear anything. My son wants me to wear like a hoodie and like a mask like I'm in the purge. But I'm like, you know, I. <laughs> I've never seen those movies. I don't really like them, but okay. <laughs> right. So pretty general trick-or-treating for the Sisters of Slaughter. Yes. And a lot of candy eating. I told my kids already, any Reese's peanut butter cups is my toll for walking them around the neighborhood. They're going to have to hand them on over, Reese's peanut butter cups, all of them. So. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> Michelle Garza. Please give your best to your sister. Good luck with all of your projects, including Silverwood the Door, which sounds very exciting. And thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Michelle Garza, a sister of Slaughter, for joining me, and to the great Stephen King for scaring the bejesus out of so many people, and for being a general great American, contributing to the cause of American letters. You can support the show at historyofliterature.com slash shop, or by heading over to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash literature we'll be back next time as we continue our run through the autumn into November I think we'll have F. Scott Fitzgerald coming up soon that's with Mike Palindrome you won't want to miss it so sign up now and tell all your friends I'm Jack Wilson thank you for listening and we'll see you next time